Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Choir Fam Podcast. I'm Dean Leafy, the Director of Choral Activities at Washington State University. And I'm Matthew Myers, the Coordinator of Choral Music Education at Washington State University. In our discussions about the current state of choral music and what it will look like in the future, we agreed that more conversations need to happen to bring the choral community together. And that's why we're here. We bring guests from the Worldwide Choir Fam onto the show to share their wisdom and help make our choral world a little bit closer. By speaking with our guests, we hope to provide interesting tidbits of knowledge you could use in your day-to-day rehearsals and give you a sense for how issues that matter to all of us are being observed and addressed. We hope you'll enjoy these conversations as we work to strengthen our choral community. Welcome to the Choir Fan. Well, Dean, how's it going today? Today's going well. I am... uh, very excited about this week. Uh, of course, we have some podcast recordings, which I'm really excited about. Um, also, uh, you know, I'm test driving a couple of new Indian recipes. Uh, and sorry, that it's summer. I have time to do this. And so I'm going to do this. A couple of Indian recipes that uh, that I normally just blow through that I want to tweak. And so I'm going to do a couple of those this week. Um, how about you? How's this week? You have a trip coming up again. Yeah. Yeah. So just did this wedding in Houston and now I'll be heading home pretty soon to see my family. I usually see them twice a year. So um, taking the dog and driving across um, <laughs> the Northern United States over to South Dakota. Um, and then I'll get to go to another wedding in Minneapolis while I'm back over there. So that'll be pretty neat. And yeah, in the meantime, just doing a little planning for the Plus Coral Society. Um, getting our season tickets ready to go with our um, annual letter. And yeah, so just doing some things that don't necessarily have time to do um, in the school year, which includes seeing my family because that happens rarely. So definitely looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. So Dean, you were kind enough to invite our guest today. Uh, Would you like to tell our audience a bit about how you know him and why you've brought him here? So, um, Michael McGlynn is a name that a lot of us in the choral community know, both as a composer and as a a producer, uh, a conductor, although Anuna isn't conducted per se, perhaps led maybe is the best way to say it. Um, But we know Michael McGlynn. And so uh, when there was an opportunity to just, hey, reach out and he emailed back and I thought, well, that, that let's do this then. If if he's willing to, let's do this. That's wonderful. Again, uh, it's an opportunity, Matt, for you and I to have an interesting discussion. But moreover, it's an opportunity for our listeners to hear directly from Michael about uh, some things that that he would like to talk about. So, um, why is he here? It's because I'm excited, and I think that there's going to be a great conversation ahead here. So that's why. So here is a bit more about Michael. Um, Born in 1964 in Dublin, Ireland, Michael McGlynn is a composer of music and lyrics, filmmaker, and runs the three connected vocal ensembles that he founded, Anuna, Manam, and Sistier. Michael's music combines elements of modality and contemporary compositional practices. He specializes in the composition of music for voices. His extensive output includes a number of pieces that have entered the standard repertoire of choirs all over the world. His settings of Irish language texts in particular fuse modality, alternating time signatures, and medieval tone colors in a unique fashion that is instantly recognizable as his work. While he is deeply passionate about creating music in the Irish language, his music is expansive, spanning genres, languages, and exploring the links between filmmaking and musical creativity. Michael's music spans a huge range of textures, encompassing larger-scale occasional pieces such as Anus Day, commissioned by Chanticleer, and Malalu, commissioned by the Tampere Vocal Festival. Many of his compositions have entered the standard choral repertoire for choirs across the world, including Incantations, Dulaman, One Last Song, and Hinbara. In 2017, Michael was the recipient of the University College Dublin Alumni Award in Arts and Humanities and was visiting eminent scholar at the music department of Florida Atlantic University. 
In 2019, he became part of the UCD Creative Fellows. He was artistic director of the Tampere Vocal Festival, and in 2022 was invited to give a presentation on the genesis of his compositions at the Nordic Choral Directors Conference in Reykjavik. His film, Mutability and Transcendence, was premiered at the World Symposium on Choral Music 2023 in Istanbul. Michael has produced and recorded 19 albums for Anuna and Manam. Anuna in 1993, Celtic Origins in 2007, and Christmas Memories in 2008 have featured in the U.S. Billboard charts. Deep Dead Blue in 1999 was nominated for a Classical Brit Award and went top five in the U.K. classical charts. So, Michael, thanks for joining us and welcome to the Choir Fam. Great to be here. Thank you for asking me. You know, this is I, listening to your bio. It's just you've done so much work here. In addition to that, you've also, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, composed music for a video game or otherwise was it Anuna that uh, performed uh, in recordings for those? Well, we do. Um, it's a strange kind of a thing, really. I mean, actually, the only things I have actually composed for video games are lyrics. Um, most recently, there was a massive game released, Bayonetta Origins, on the Switch console, which I wrote the lyrics for the theme. And my daughter, who you caught a glimpse of earlier, making the salad, she sang the title song on that um, in the Irish language, which was kind of interesting that they chose to create something in Irish for such a big Japanese game, which, which has such a close relationship to Nintendo culture. Um, and um, Anuna have been, been included on a number of video games um, for various consoles, but particularly the Xenoblade series, which is very big in Japan, less big in America, but quite big in Japan. And both my daughters have sung on anime, neither of which I can talk about. <laughs> I could probably be sued for even saying they were, but I wouldn't be because actually the people are very nicely to deal with. So um, the, the video game connection is kind of interesting because the first connection we had with that was in 2012, I think it was, when the American composer Russell Brower um, asked us to represent the voices of hell on the game Diablo 3, which was massive on the PC and subsequently on multiple platforms. And the funny thing is that Anuna's association with creating a, a very, quite a, a unique vocal sound lies at the core of why we're asked to do these things. And it is kind of funny, I'm treading on toes somewhat saying this, but it is kind of funny that people listen to the sound of Anuna and immediately feel that it has a universal relevance that transcends choral music in particular. Uh, um, and the choral community look at it and they don't go, how do you do that? What are you doing? Um, because, you know, getting our message out there, let's be honest, and I'm sure you'll both agree with me, choral music is a minority musical pursuit. If you, for example, ask a classical music player, professional classical music player of an instrument, if they know who Eric Whitaker is, it's highly unlikely they do. Um, and it is, you know, we there's a very, a very good friend of mine, a composer who shall remain nameless, an American composer. When he met me first, he said, "Are you famous, or are you choir famous?" <laughs> and I live by that mantra: Am I famous, or am I just choir famous? And I think we do have to be aware of the fact that choral music is the most practiced classical form of singing that exists on the planet by multitudes of millions of people that practice it. And yet it has the weakest voice out there. It's the one that when we go to a big concert, you'll always notice the chorus director is the one who's asked out last after they bring out the guy who cleans out the ashtrays in the orchestra changing rooms it's the you know the choir i mean it's like you know and you'll often get conductors conducting orchestral conductors come in for one rehearsal and then they're there and they're mouthing the german for bach and you're thinking <laughs> you've been working on them for the last three weeks and you come in here and you're superior because you're of course an instrumental conductor it is for me that lies at the that's at the heart 
of many of the issues we have, we don't have a lot of self-confidence as an art form. Um, we're not as flexible as we'd like to think we are. And we're not as inclusive musically as we'd like to think we are. Um, so I think hopefully, I think Anuna has shaken up a lot of those perceptions over the years, as I hope I have. Of course, it's destroyed my career, but there you go. Well, Michael, one question that we like to ask all of our guests um, is intentionally really open-ended. So we'll give you time to go with it as much as you like. But how did you fall in love with choral music or music in general? Uh, can you tell us um, how you started and uh, where it's taken you? Well, that's a great question, actually. Very good question. Um, the first time I heard choral music was, I remember two pieces. The first was Ave Verum by Mozart. And I would have heard that when I would have been about 16 for the first time. Um, and that would have been the second piece. The first piece was Ligeti Lux Eterna, um, which I'm sure you both know, um, which is, an, it's a highly complex, extremely structured piece of choral music. Um, but before that, I'd never heard a choir. I had no idea even what they really were. I hadn't ever seen one live and I'd never sung in one, thanks to the Irish education system at the time, which they're following up on quite successfully since then here. Um, so the first choir I actually sang in was when I was 19. And the first piece I sang was O Sacrum Convivium by Messiaen. So my entire musical education is not connected to either classical music, except that I learned piano. I was appalling. I was an appalling pianist. I, I, I couldn't sight read. And happily, my children now have both been diagnosed with various problems with actually reading. So I assume I have them as well. But I had a grade three sight reading capacity when I was attempting to do a diploma, which you can imagine how difficult that is. But it did mean that I realized at a very early age that whatever I did, I was never, ever going to be accepted at the, you know, as a professional musician. So I never tried. So the kind of music I would have listened to are very into punk and very into new wave. Um, always have been interested in the in the time stream from Fats Waller through to jazz to um, contemporary popular music or whatever was involved. And then when I went to college, I started listening to contemporary music. I don't really have any interest in music between um, after Mozart, with some exceptions, understandably, I will sit and listen to a Beethoven string quartet with a degree of joy up to Debussy, and then I wouldn't listen to any of that. Um, and then my interest would then lie up to contemporary music. I don't listen to choral music at all, ever. Um, it's kind of funny. I should, I suppose, but I don't. I'm not really interested in choral music. And um, so when I started doing it at 19, it was more the sound that the voices made together. And I never associated that with choral music. I associated this with the greater collection and community of music. And as I, I'm actually answering something, now, I've never answered this way before. So bear with me. Um, when I saw what that power was, Somebody asked me, what is it you hear? And I said, I see the sun rising when I hear them sing. And the biggest problem I had was the interaction with the choirs themselves that I was in when I was young. And with the infrastructure that existed around it, I didn't see why most conductors conducted because they were entirely unnecessary in most cases. I didn't understand why the singers weren't interested in the songs themselves. They were far more interested in singing them than they were in the actual reason why the songs were written the way they were. Um, and I think that I wanted to create something that related to a very simple fact. In Ireland, we don't have an indigenous form of choral music. Our language and our culture is monophonic, not polyphonic. So for us, the individual voice represents the community. And while people would sing together, there's no polyphonic singing in our tradition at all. All of it was imported from other countries. Um, and I wanted to create a form of polyphonic singing that related to that. So first and foremost, I had to work out 
what it was that special magic sound was that was part of our tradition and part of popular music as well. And then try and connect that to the techniques I had learned and my vocal training. I mean, I'm I'm a trained singer and I have worked professionally as one for many, many years. Um, so my interest lay in creating a form which was accessible to everyone. And Anuna grew from that. So that explains why when people hear Anuna's sound, it is so relatable because that's what it was actually physically designed to do. Well, that sounds very organic rather than thinking, I love this choir. This, the, for example, me growing up, it was the Dale Warland singers over in Minnesota in the United States to say, I want to sound like that. This sounds like you have this idea for the sound in your head that perhaps was organic to where it is, where you lived, but wasn't necessarily within the canon. I don't know if that's 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 the way to say yeah, it. Yeah, it's a very it's a very very. I think that's pretty much the way. But it's um, I, it was more it was on a more basic level, in that I didn't want to um, I didn't want to propagate the idea that choral music was in some way unobtainable to everybody. And from what I could see, the choral infrastructure did its utmost to make it that way. Um, and it was tiered into levels. There was the plebs who were, you know, the high school choirs and the high school choral directors. And then there was the people who existed up on a much higher level, who would be the people that we bow and scrape to when they turn up at choral festivals. And I couldn't understand what the difference between the two was, because as far as I could see, the most interesting performances I'd ever attended were the ones done by amateur choirs, mainly because the word amateur means to love. And amateur choirs love things, whereas professionals tend to get tied up in their own self-importance. Um, I'm going to have to pause just for a second. Hold on. So for our listeners, Michael is on holiday right now, and uh, he is on the western side of Ireland. He's with his daughter, who, as you heard, is making salad. So uh, we're going to uh, take a little pause here and... Uh, Matt and I can talk about this. So, yeah, this is interesting thinking about that there is this organic understanding of what um, Irish vocal music could be with what the hierarchy is and what you don't want. I think uh, that's really interesting. So, But it's, it's very, I mean, I don't want to um, be as simplistic about it because the hierarchy is necessary as well, if you know what I mean. I mean, you do need to push forms forward, but not if they're not inclusive. Do you know what I mean? I mean, when people are choir famous, they're famous for being part of choirs and for being brilliant choral musicians, when in fact, technically, they need to be musicians first and foremost. Mm. So one of the things that we also talk about is some of the early experiences that are uh, that our uh, guests have had. So um, you had mentioned that you, that you're a trained singer. How did that training go about? Where did you study and uh, how did that all, how did that all work? Well, I studied first as an early musician um, in that I, I came into singing through early music. Um, and um, then I realized how restrictive that form actually was because um, it was, you see, people make mistakes and they believe that early music has to, it, it comes with this kind of idea of a small voice. You know, you have this small voice and it's for small spaces, but you only need to look at the spaces that these people sang in to realize that, you know, they could sing. And more than that, if we look at very early tracks on singing technique, it's very much the head is backwards and the jaws dropped, which if you look at Pavarotti, you see exactly the same form. Um, and there's a huge amount of extensive work, particularly in Italy in the 17th century, going into the 18th century, which shows there was always a tradition of singing. And if we look at the three women in Ferrara, the three gentlewomen in Ferrara, who specialized in, in these intense Monteverdian um, ornamentation. So my interest came through early music and I wanted to sing it 
properly. And I wanted to analyze why it was that, um, or more than analyze, I wanted to challenge the ideas about it. So my training was opera primarily. And if you ask me now what the closest form of singing to the techniques that Anuna propagate are, it's opera. Opera, it would be opera and popular music because opera is popular music. Bear in mind that opera singers are usually trained, but supposed to be trained properly. And I mean successful ones. I don't mean ones in college where the teacher is more intent on the idea of producing opera singers rather than singers. Um, so we developed over, particularly over the last 10 years, methodologies of actually um, uh, training our singers because we're in a very unique position. There's 10 different countries in Onuna. Um, and we don't rehearse. We don't have a base. We have no, we're not associated with any college or institution. We don't even have a city anymore to come to since we no longer associate ourselves with Ireland. Um, and so if we're doing a tour, we turn up one day beforehand and we may not even have seen the singers for years. We may even have singers on the tour who've never sung with the group before. They have to stand up and do a tour or do a performance for two hours without music, with no conductor. So our techniques have been devised to create that, um, um, that ethos where you can communicate very quickly with the singers. And more importantly, you can achieve the same immediacy of sound. So it's kind of interesting. Anuna is not born out of years of manicured work. It's born out of the old Mickey Rooney, uh, Judy Garland thing. Let's put Joe on here. <laughs> so it's it's let's do it here and it's why our shows are so disconcerting to watch uh live on una really at this stage in its life has to be seen to be believed because choral people come to us and they go what are you doing how are you standing all over the room and singing together with no conductor <laughs> because we move an enormous amount in performance because i write music which reflects the, the the connection between the audience and the performer and um, makes them, as they say in the East, beat with one heart. And uh, um, so our aim is to connect people using our techniques totally unconsciously, connect our, each other, connect to each other. So it's a thrilling experience. It's like being in a theatre group working with Anuna, which would probably be the closest connection to it. Um, and it's we're just so lucky to have the opportunity to just be around at this time to work with each other. And I don't know how long Anuna will last, but when it's gone, it's gone. And I hope that people, particularly choral music, benefits from the time that we've been together. So in what way, if this is this is the pedagogy of what you do here, in what way do you not direct the singers to move together, but allow them to organically understand that they should, you know, rather than to say, do you see this person's foot step there? You should all be stepping together. Is that what it is? Or is it just look at each other, go to the left? Uh, in, in doing a little preparation for uh, our podcast today, I did listen to an interview you did on Daily Doug, in which case you discussed the um, particularly the the choreography of choirs at times and that the how that doesn't necessarily uh fit a bill for you that uh no so in what way do we organically engage our singers to move without directing them to move to uh, give them idea for an intention without giving them a direction how does that work how does that work well, it's very hard for me to tell you what it is but i actually probably can well first of all i have to take a step back um the way that anuna unifies and does so in this semi-miraculous way is through the fact that over a very long period of time over the 35 years 36 years that i've been working through anuna and creating it um, we had to devise methodologies of communication, which were incredibly simple. Because initially when we talk, we talk and talk and talk and talk, and you'd go to an Anuna rehearsal, and basically three quarters of it was trying to explain 
what it was we were trying to do. Um, and because there was no one else doing it, you had to keep explaining it. And then they'd go and they'd do something else and they'd come back and they'd say, everyone else is saying the opposite to you. And I'd say, well, that doesn't mean I'm wrong. It just means that that's the tradition. And I'm not interested in that tradition. I'm interested in doing things which rotate around one idea. That's common sense. Everything is based on common sense. So the three pillars of Anuna's technique, three, that's three fingers I have up, isn't it? Three. First one is simple. It's the breath, the unification of the breath. And that doesn't mean that you're unifying your breath, that everyone is just breathing at the same time. That's a big mistake. You're unifying what it is that you're doing, why you're breathing, and you're thinking about the context of the breath. So, for example, when Anunas start a piece and they and they have to come in dry out of nowhere and they take the breath, the breath is connected to the piece they're singing. So every breath for every piece is different. And the way they breathe has to be the same. If you see the effort of the breath, you see them lifting their shoulders or they're lifting their eyebrows or whatever they're doing, that means that you're actually, they're transmitting their effort. They're not focused on the breath which occurs in the same place for all singers. And I don't need to tell singers that. I just need to tell them to get a three-year-old or a two-year-old and tell them to breathe and watch their tummies going in and out and the fact that their ribs are out, which, by the way, is what Pavarotti did. You know, there's no difference between the two, to be 100% honest. So that's the first thing. The second pillar is the word. What's the word? What are you actually saying? So... Um, if you're singing an ah vowel, ah, and you're singing an er vowel, that's not an ah vowel. So you have to unify the vowel you're singing. Your technique should not dictate that vowel. It really should not. And if you can hear the effort of your technique clicking into place to sing, that means your technique is flawed. It really is. <laughs> I mean, there's simple rules to it. You don't close your mouth too quickly. Oh, that's, and in Ireland, we have diphthongs all over the place where you say, uh, let's say, um, <laughs> the favourite one is P.A. Jesu. In Ireland, we would say P.A. Jesu. P.A. Jesu, because we use a form of English called Hiberno-English, which means we diphthongize everything. Um, and you use it in America. So you... You have to sing P, uh, yeah. It has to sound the same. There's no point in someone saying, my singing teacher has told me I need to place it in the mass. So I'm singing P, yeah. That's not a unification of the, the word. And also, you know, what do the words mean? What does that sentence mean? Why do conductors conduct phrases? If the phrase is, um, the lake lay blue below the hill, why is conductor conducting adults? <laughs> to say the lake lay blue below the hill. What's the job of the conductor? He's not a bus conductor. So people need to think about what they're saying and where the word stresses are supposed to be. And that is not the job of the conductor. So it removes that stress of that relationship between the conductor and the singer. By taking the breath issue out, you're actually the conductors are usually the worst for that. They tend to transmit their tension to the singers before they start. So the breath can often be very tense before it begins. Um, I'm skipping over a lot of detail here. And the third pillar, which is the most important one, is what are we doing here? Intent, the breath, the word, the intent. What are we trying to do here? What does this song mean? What are we trying to transmit to the audience? If we move, what are we moving for? Why are we doing something? And that comes to your question about movement. All movement in Anuna is ritualistic, all of it. A ritual is something which you enact in order to achieve something. So, for example, if you watch Anuna move in performance, they never are doing it for themselves. They are doing it to achieve a ritual. And I'm not saying it's a religious ritual at all. Washing your hands after you use the toilet is a ritual. <laughs> so let's be clear. So if you move as part of a ritual, your actual movement must be within the context of the purpose of that ritual. So therefore, 
do you need to understand what the ritual is? And the answer is, no, you don't. What you need to know is that the ritual works. So with Anuna, we know it works. I've arranged one traditional Irish work called Jerusalem, which we've sung at virtually every single concert we've done since 1991. And it works on the concept of ritual. It's very simple. The girls sing heterophonically, which is a form of singing which, um, where they don't actually sing together. There's a cantor and then there's an end voice. And then within the context of each line, they sing the line with the same intent. And as they move, they move into the audience and they create this extraordinary quasi-mystical connection to the audience. It doesn't matter whether you're a spiritual person or you're not, that connection is always made. It is always disconcerting. It always creates a problem for the audience because it brings the audience and the singer together using something that neither really understands. Because if you explain rituals to people, it takes away the mystery of them and it takes away what fundamentally links all of us as human beings. You know, you just mentioned something. Uh, I think we we have a challenge sometimes with uh, having an aesthetic tether with our audiences. The audiences come in because... Uh, their children are a part of the program. They just came from work and perhaps they're not in the headspace to be aesthetically open and aware to receive this stuff. My, what you just mentioned, just click something for me that there, there is a, oh gosh, I'm, what is the wording you used? You pose a problem. There's a problem here. There's something that must be fixed like gone through in the brain. And in that way, you engage that audience interestingly. Wow. That, that's really neat. I, I like that idea of this posing this, this issue, this problem. And by doing so, you, the audience must be engaged. You know. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're forcing the audience to engage whether they want to or not. There's nothing I enjoy more than dads coming up who would. I mean, my father used to sit in my concerts and he literally looked like he wanted to throw himself under a bus because he'd seen these rituals occur so many times. Because, oh, God, here they go again. But then you go to Japan and there's people coming up and they're well, not coming up, but you're looking down at the audience and you have to stop yourself responding to them because they're crying in every single concert Hanuna does. And I can assure you, Hanuna performances <laughs> are not serious. They're, what we do is very serious, and therefore it's very important that we don't scare people away. So, I mean, Hanuna are renowned among professional vocal ensembles for stopping in the middle of a song and restarting it if we don't like it. Because um, we're there to, to kind of do it right, you know, if we can. And it's rarely right. I mean, we never sing the same piece the same way, ever, 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 because that's not actually important. And what's important is that we are all singing with one voice, but each one of us completely isolated and separate from the other. We all have the same intent. We breathe alone. We're not breathing together, but our intent and the words are connected to each other. And in that way, that infection transmits to the audience who just i mean in the netherlands in particular when we tour in december and people come in and they have colds and they're coughing we'll stop the concert and we get them to breathe together and say when you watch us breathing we need you to to breathe with us so that you're connecting yourself to what we're doing and they do it and afterwards they come up and say i just had this kind of mystical experience what is it and i go i have no idea I'd make a million if I could explain what it was. But Anuna is a unique and extraordinary group. And um, I do know it has had a profound effect on um, musicians out there, but it hasn't really had the effect on choral music that I expected. Um, it, it, but maybe, yes, it might. But to be honest, I didn't create it for that reason. Um, I created it to explore these ideas rather than evangelize people into changing something that seems to work for everyone else. I mean, it doesn't work for me, but it does work for everybody else and fair juice to them. There's great work being done out there. You know, I wouldn't condemn any of it. So 
Anuna is changing a bit. The um, We have two new ensembles. Could you tell us uh, how those ensembles got started? Well, I always wanted to form an ensemble of men, men's voices, because I, 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 there's something about men singing that's very, very, very different to women. Um, for a start, men don't really sing choirly. Anuna is unique in that it has always had more men in it than women. Um, and it's because it doesn't engage them as choral singers, because geez, most young lads don't want to sing in a choir, you know, but they do want to sing. And they want to sing in a band. And Anun is a band. It's not a choir. It's a band of people. All I mean, put it this way, the closest um, description, if somebody asks me what the structure of Anun is, and I say, well, it's a bunch of five people in a garage, and they all play instruments. And each one of them is committed to be in that band. Each one of them, you know? And not only that, but they know that they're only as weak or strong as the weakest member of that band. So sometimes a band will actually thrive on the fact that two of the members are not very good. They keep everybody else in check. They keep everyone else on the same level. And as a result, that cohesive community is created. So that's what we attempt to do in Anun. I mean, we have professional We've, we've just worked in, in Iceland with um, this amazing opera singer called Brindis. And Brindis is a spectacular coloratura soprano, like with an international career. Um, and I remember when I said, she, she came to me and she said, I want to join Anuna. And I said, oh, my God, how are we going to deal with that? So the first session we did with her, she said, oh, I'm singing alto. But she's a soprano. She knew what Anuna was. She knew that there was no point in her singing soprano because no one else could sing like she did. So she sings alto in Anuna. It's really quite extraordinary. So the singers understand that. That's really, 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 really important. With Manam, that, that weakness, guys spend their lives trying to pretend that they are bigger than they are, that they're stronger than they are, they're sexier than they are. And Manam is about all the bits in between that. Um, it does help that um, we have this very strong Icelandic-Irish connection. The guys are from Iceland and Ireland, and they're two very ancient cultures that are connected together. And the music I've created for them reflects that. Um, it's also much smaller than Anuna. There's only seven guys at maximum, eight guys in the group at any one time. And they're more like a band um, in that although they'll sing in multiple parts and they're all highly trained musicians and classical singers, they four or five of them play guitar and you know drums or play various instruments. And the other group, Sistir, is different. In many ways, it's more important because Sistir is actually created to reflect women's um, the 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 I suppose a female epos. And um, in that, the each one of the women in the group is a focal point in it. And we've six in Sister, but it expands by two more if we need them. And their performance is extremely different to Anuna and very, very different to Man. And you can see the ancestry of Anuna in the way they work together, but they're much wilder. They are a wild bunch of women. And the music they create is deeply passionate but quite formal as well. It's very hard to describe them. Um, and I'm very lucky. Both of my daughters are part of Sister. And that means I am constantly booted out of Zoom meetings. And we've one guy in the group. One. <laughs> and he plays guitar and he sings. Um, so the girls can do their own thing then. And they're all multi-instrumentalists as well. So um, it's a coup. And it's a, I would say both of them will be very, very, very successful over time. Monum is older and more successful at this point, but Sister's really only taking off this year, and I'm really excited about where it's going to go. Can you talk a little bit about how singing has been a part of your family? So knowing you know your brother being in Anuna with you, daughters and Sister, like has it just always been um, something that's been important to your family, or did you actively like let them choose to find um, find singing uh, your daughters I'm gonna say all the wrong things here um my wife is um, has been a member of Anuna since 1996 
Um, but she's a classically trained singer. I mean, she's specializing again, funnily enough, in early music, which is really cool. Um, and uh, she has come through an entire classical ethos and a different one entirely because she's British. So she's come through the English system. She's also a very highly qualified um, classical music administrator. She has managed professional orchestras in the UK and all that. So when we had children, um, the, we did talk about this a lot, but actually we decided that neither of us wanted them to become musicians at all. I, I would absolutely, I mean, they did piano lessons. Ashley did piano lessons for a couple of years and gave up. Um, Lauren was more successful. She did a few grades in violin and then she pokes at it. Um, neither of them read music very well. Um, but their 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 knowledge and their extraordinary capacity to <laughs> to absorb musical constructions are based on the fact that we never encourage them to do it at all. If they say they want to do it, <laughs> that's grand. Um, at the moment, um, uh, it is rather irritating because I'm going deaf, so I tend to work with my kids when I'm editing, um, and. Ashling is really irritating because she talks about the tuning in the second alto part. And you just tell her, and when she gets stuffed, I just go, that second, you see that second part? That is under it there. And see that now, that's, I would say, how far under is And I go, well, it's actually a quarter of a tone under. So if you could use the term, then do you know which part it's in? And she said, there's those four notes there. And the actual tuning starts to go wrong there, three or four seconds beforehand on this note. And that's without really any knowledge of what it is. I, there's a great Frank Sinatra story, I have to tell you at this point. He did a session with Nelson Riddle. And as far as I know, this would have been one of the earliest ones. He walked into the room. The orchestra were playing with Sinatra, not a classically trained musician, walks in. He said, OK, let's go, guys. Off they went and they played a few phrases. And he said, everyone, stop. Second viola, you're under the note. And the, and the players went, oh, scary stuff. And they got on fantastic apps. Of course, he didn't know what he was saying at all. But you do know that most of the time, classical musicians who lead things don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I mean, there are wonderful conductors out there who have to conduct these massive structures of music. And I'm very privileged to have worked with probably the best Irish one I know, which is Emer Noon. Um, she actually was the first woman to play at the Oscars, which is um, it's extraordinary achievement. Um, and just watching her control a massive symphony orchestra like she was doing last week in the Royal Albert Hall with my two children singing solo. <laughs> I saw that video. There's video out there. I saw that. Yeah. But I mean, that's the kind of thing we do. Do you want to sing in the in the national concert or in, in the in the Royal Albert Hall with the the the, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Uh, will I miss school? Yeah, yeah, you might miss school. <laughs> What's this project we're doing? Well, it's a massive video game in Japan. Oh, right. Can you ask my sister to do it? <laughs> You're getting paid for it. Okay, yeah, okay, I'll do it. Yeah, how much am I getting paid? Well, if you're no good, you're not getting paid anything. So I have to learn it. Yeah, you can't just walk in and make it up. You have to actually learn the music. So it is a weird house, I have to say. Traumatizing is the word I was looking for earlier. Traumatizing. <laughs> well, I think our listeners can understand that music can do that to you, too. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So um, you are also a filmmaker, how did that come about? Is it uh, you had more to say and you wanted it visual? How did, how did that come about? Well, it's funny enough, actually, that's uh, this is the first time I've been asked this because I'm either being interviewed about the films I make or the music, but no one's actually ever asked me that question before. And the answer is real simple. My dad was a, an amateur photographer and he was an extraordinary amateur photographer. Um, his work is like terrifying. And you'd have to see it to understand what that means. His, he took photographs of Ireland in the 1980s and the 1970s. And the, and the Ireland he photographed was something Irish people did not want to look at. Poverty. and But I have to say, dignity under the worst terms. You would have to understand 
what kind of a country Ireland is. It has the it has the the strongest. I think it it per per capita it has the highest GDP GDP in the world at the moment. At the in the world, it's one of the, it has a, the average industrial wage would be about for the the lowest basic is about forty thousand dollars a year, maybe more. Um, and it is up there in the echelons. But when I was young, it was a poor country with poverty written all over the place. No one ever lived there. Um, or no one stayed there. Everyone emigrated. And that's why so many Irish people live in America. It's that simple. Um, but getting back to your question, um, he showed me unconsciously the same things, I suppose, that myself and my wife have shown my daughters, which is what things look like. When you look at things, what are you trying to show? And we took it for granted. Um, and over the years, when Anuna became extremely successful um, in the 1990s, um, we signed to we were signed to some of the largest record labels in the world. And I think we were with was it Universal or somebody at the time? They brought in all these video game video makers, and they wanted um, uh, they were franchising it out. And they wanted, you know, them to make a video of the lead single from our new album. And um, their ideas were crap. And when we asked them questions, we realized they were absolutely crap. They had no ideas that were something I didn't have. And they then went off and they were hiring technical people in to take those crap ideas and expand on them. And I thought, why are we paying like $100,000 for a three-minute video, which surely it can be made. But I hadn't realized exactly what it cost to make a film at that stage. So at the early part of the noughties, 2003, I think, I went out and I bought myself a Mac. Um, after many, many, many years of trying to get people to make films about Anuna to try and portray some of the ideas we had on screen, I bought a Mac, I bought a, a, um, an expensive camera, and I made two videos, one of which involved my daughter's Ashling, when she was about, I don't know, she was about that big, and taking my wife up on the top of a mountain, and Ashling kept rolling down the hill because we'd no babysitter. And I took a video, you'll see it actually up on YouTube, Shula Room, um, S I U I L A R U I M. And Shula Room is kind of interesting. Lucy is standing up singing on the top of a mountain, and then there's nice pictures of birds, and then we got the, or of the butterfly, and then we got the choir in later, some of whom had been out the night before and were very hungover. And they were all stuck in the sun and they were attacked by ant flies. And I was loving this because it's a great buzz. So I learned how to edit from that video. I made $12,000 out of that video, 12000 which paid for all the equipment. So I said, God, this isn't very hard. I'm going to make more. So I made a full length <laughs> feature film. And then I sold that in Japan and it was broadcast on many different channels. And it wasn't very good because I was like no training. So I was just learning how to use all the stuff myself. And YouTube didn't even have like things. So you'd have to bring someone in who you knew you had to edit this bit. Um, and then I realized actually this isn't very hard. And now I think at this stage I've made, including the ones which are, are not um broadcast or public yet i've made about eight full-length films um of which i think four are documentaries and three are concert films live concert films which are extremely complex to make and involve sound and lighting and i do all the editing and i do the mastering and i do most of the filming in some of them and some of them i do all the filming um and more recently now i'm starting to to expand that i'm working with a dutch artist at the moment Renzo Tamse, and he is a brilliant man, and I want to record his ideas because I love the idea of music connected to visuals. And I'm also working on a documentary with uh, an Irish academic here on early Irish music, which a lot needs to be said about that. Um, so I pick and choose what I want to do. Um, you are fighting against very much like the choral thing, a system where things are supposed to be really difficult. And if you don't go through the system and acknowledge those difficulties, and acknowledge that there's a ceiling where you really shouldn't be reaching over, then people say, well, that doesn't relate to me. How does Michael McLean do all those things on his own? Well, the reason is because I can't see a ceiling. I come from a country where you either buy into the very limited choral outlook or you don't talk about choral music and you say, okay, I'm an artist. I'm going to 
create visuals, I'm going to create videos, I'm going to create performances, I'm going to create lyrics, I'm going to write songs. And I'd much rather be that, even though it is quite isolating, it, because you can't know too much. And I wouldn't say I was brilliant at anything, but I'm proficient at a lot of things, which means when I do employ people to do things, by God, they need to be good. They need to be better than me. And I'm very lucky. I actually work with quite a lot of people who are better than I am. Well, Michael, I think that we could talk. Yeah, we could talk all day. Uh, but I could talk all day. <laughs> well, and okay, then then our listeners could listen all day. But uh, I know, it looks I'll go out to Steve eventually. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Matt, is it time to transition to our lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. So we just have a short series of questions here that ideally you don't have to think very hard. Just um, whatever answer comes to mind is a good answer. So uh, first one, uh, would you rather have a beach or mountain vacation? Beach, but I, I'm a swimmer. That's all I do. Swim and surf. In your primary years, your high school, what was your favorite subject in school other than music? Irish. Oh, I didn't like music in school at all. English and Irish, particularly English. I love English literature. In fact, my primary degree is not music. It's English. If you could go to a concert to hear any performer, living or dead, who would you pick? Oh, um, well, one I haven't, I did actually meet and spend some time with is an American rock singer called Jeff Buckley. And I only saw one performance of his before he died. Um, but he he was absolutely extraordinary. And I saw David Bowie, so I don't really need to see anyone else. What is the best kind of sandwich? Uh, one in your stomach, really, to be 100% honest. But if I was going to make a sandwich, um, I well, made the sandwich I had yesterday, which would be, um, brown whole grain bread um, with avocado and um, pickles, um, some kind of protein, doesn't really matter what, and then everything that no one else eats. So, I mean, beetroot and crap. I'd put anything in a sandwich. But actually, in general, my favorite kind of food is would probably be um, pretty eclectic. I would be very much a fan of Eastern food. Now, this one, most of our guests have like too many answers because all they do is listen to choral music. So we'll see where this goes. Uh, if you had to pick one favorite choral piece, what would it be? Well, as I say, I don't really listen to choral music at all. Um, but I think um, I, it's a hard one in some ways because um, I'd have to think about the ones which had actually affected me most. Um, and I suppose in many ways, it would be the Stabat Mater by Palestrina. It wouldn't be my favorite, but it is probably the most important choral piece I ever heard. What is one composer you feel needs more attention? Everything that predates classical choral music. That's an entire form of singing. But if I was going to advise anyone to go and listen to one composer, it's Masho. And if there was another choice, it would be to sit down and get off your, or to stand up and get off your ass and listen to Georgian choral music. Or Albanian isopolyphony. Awesome. Um, what is your favorite memory associated with music? I'm standing on stage in Tokyo in 2017 and performing with a full no theater company to 2000 people in Japanese, medieval Japanese, um, as one unified, unified ensemble. And we improvised most of the music on stage as we were performing. And it was really the most hair-raising, thrilling experience I've ever had. I, can, I can't, doesn't compare to anything else. I mean, I've done everything else, but that's the one I remember most. I just got to say for our listeners, this is a question that people ponder for a while. Michael, that was right there. 
that it must have been impactful just that yeah well it was yeah it, it it was but not necessarily for the reasons um it's you see my entire philosophy of choral music is that of all the forms of music it is the one that has the capacity to induce a state of transcendence and as a composer that is my primary function but bear in mind i don't write music for choirs i write music for people and if you perform the music correctly it should allow you to achieve not all of it but quite a chunk of my stuff is created to it's not a, a technique it's not a device to do that it's 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 like the ability to open a gateway um, a higher state of consciousness. And in that performance in particular, we achieved it because we unified two things that were impossible to unify. They're impossible. There's no cultural connection between the two forms at all. But what there is there is a human connection. So that's what we succeeded in doing. You can see it, actually. It was recorded, and you'll find it um, actually probably on the Anuna bio on its website, anuna.ie. So what projects are you working on right now that you're excited about? Um, well, Anuna recording a new album, and that is always a traumatic event. Always very traumatic. Um, I'm finding it particularly traumatic this time because my hearing is fading. So it's very hard to edit. Um, but I have, I am kind of excited about the way that we're creating it, which is new. And it, I know the singers are thrilled by it, particularly the Icelanders, because they're a very formalized nation of classical musicians. Um, and that's that I usually write the music on the day we're recording it, or just before it, maybe, maybe a couple of days before, and then I'm finishing it, literally walking into the studio. Um, so therefore, I don't know it at all, um, usually. And we are clonked with this stuff, and we have to record it. Um, and it's kind of fascinating. I have done it before, but it's mainly because, you know, this massive traumatic effect of hearing loss, which, by the way, is never spoken about. It's really extraordinary. People never talk about it and so many people suffer from it, um, has opened a whole new concept for me. The idea that the music is already there. It's already in my head. And the biggest problem is that I have to go through the the, the junk that's associated with composition and choirs, and I have to tolerate it. I'd, I don't care what the standard of the performances is. What I'm excited about is the energy level that's achieved when people are exploring something together for the first time. And I think that can be achieved with an amateur choir, can be achieved with students, it can be achieved with anyone. I've seen it done. I think we overcomplicate choral music because we have an industry based around it. But I do believe it's much simpler and easier than people let on, unless you deliberately write music, which is not designed to be sung by choirs, but is designed to be sung by instruments, which, unfortunately, most of my colleagues do. Well, hey, you've reached the end of the lightning round. Um, so one last question here. If our audience would like to get in touch with you or follow you on social media, uh, how can they do that? Well, I'm very, I'm very easy to find. Just look up on Una or Michael McLean and you'll find me there. And I'm very easy to get in touch with. I tend to answer people when they write to me. Um, and I do that mainly because um, I didn't actually get that myself. Um, and I think that the greatest degree of flattery as an artist you can have is that other people feel that you have something that may enhance their artistry or help them develop. Um, so I do answer questions and usually I can't help. No, I'm not going to mark your choral piece out of 10. Um, I'm not going to do that. I will look at it if you want to send me something, but Anuna won't sing it. it. It's not the way it works. I'm not there like all the others touting for work. I don't care whether people commission me or they don't. And I am just interested in my own exploration. And that's always the advice I give to people. Find your own voice, find your own way, and try not to get too hung up on the industry because it is all crashing down around everyone's ears at the moment. Give it two years. And all of this is academic because choral music will change, recorded music will change, Composers will no longer compose the way they did, those of them that are left to compose. 
um, AI is going to take over that role. So it's up to us to find new ways of expressing ourselves. And I think we can do that as a community very effectively once we realize it's happening and we prepare for it. Well, it was really wonderful to talk with you today, Michael. We thank you. Our audience thanks you. And we're happy to call you a part of the choir fam. You. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, guys. Great questions. And you're lovely and chilled, which is nice. I'm Dean Leafy. I'm Matthew Myers. And you've been listening to the Choir Fam Podcast. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked the show, please rate and review. If you didn't like the show, please let us know how we can better serve our Choir Fam. You can follow our Instagram page at ChoirFamPod or email us at ChoirFamPodcast at gmail.com. We welcome all our listeners to be part of our minisodes. Just look for our episode, Minisode Intro Part 2, from May 22nd, 2023, and send us an email with your answers to our Season 2 Lightning Round questions. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks again for being a part of the Choir Fam. Choir Fam.